0: So, you know, if you were here last week during the first service, I used this music stand and preached behind it, and I think I stayed there almost the whole time. Were any of you here? And, and the thing is, I created a little bit of an issue because people online, good to see you guys online, welcome, uh, loved it. <laughs> and I heard about that. Then other people texted me and say, man, you're like Sleepy Joe behind that thing. So, well, that's what they said. Okay, I didn't say that. Um, So I'm in this conundrum. Uh, I'm not gonna go behind it today. Um, We can joke, can't we? All right, we're in John's Gospel. We've made it to John chapter nine. Can someone yell out a page number if you have a blue Bible? 869? Okay. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes, and said, go. Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seen. And then skip to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, that they here um, in the narrative are called the Pharisees or the Jews. Uh, They are essentially not all Jews, but certain Jews, not all Pharisees, but certain Pharisees. They are the Jews, the Pharisees who are in power. And so when it says they threw him out, they literally excommunicated this man. So when Jesus heard that they had excommunicated him, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? I don't have time right now, but Son of Man is the highest title for Messiah. Do you believe in the Messiah? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. This is God's word, you can be seated. So just a reminder about John and his approach to writing this gospel It's the last gospel that's written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already written and in circulation. And those three gospels attempt to give an overview or a play-by-play of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, But John's gospel is unique. Um, Those other gospels move really fast, trying to cover everything. What John does is he hones in on just a few key events in Jesus' life. And what he does then is he slows the narrative way down, allowing the reader to linger in these these moments, these events, letting the story ferment. And really his approach is, he's really like saying to us, let me invite you into one day in the life of Jesus. Let Let me show you one day what Jesus was like. And what a day we're in, uh, in our text. I mean, it goes all the way back to John chapter seven, verse 37, where where it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast. Uh, The last and greatest day is the holiday Sukkot. It's the eighth and final day of Sukkot. Um, It's a holiday that runs Sabbath to Sabbath. Uh, So this last and greatest day is the eighth day of this holiday. And for this holiday, as we learned, Jews from all over the world would descend upon Jerusalem. And we have scholars and archaeologists, uh, most of them Jewish, who have recreated a model of Jerusalem and what it would have looked like in the first century during the time of Jesus. And so you're looking at Jerusalem, and of course that big building in the middle is the temple. The courtyard itself was five football fields by three football fields. So it's just massive, and it can contain uh, thousands of people. And, and for this holiday, this is the only holiday where God instructs his people uh, to wave branches, palm branches. And the palm branch is their national symbol. It's, it, it, it would be very much like just everyone waving American flags all week long. The other thing that God instructs them is he says, for the whole week, I want joy. I want passionate joy to exude from you. So you can just imagine what this week was like and it crescendoed, uh, as we've talked about, to this water ceremony on the last and greatest day of the, of the feast. And, and for this ceremony, a, a priest would take a jar and he would walk from the temple Uh, all the way down this road uh, called Pilgrim's Road. It's called Pilgrim's Road because it was the road that the pilgrims, when they entered Jerusalem, took. And literally, as they walked up it, they were marching to Zion because the road led to the temple. And so as as you walk this road, you'd also pass the equivalent of what the White House is to us. David's palace because you're walking through David's city this is the old city in the first century Um, and where all the kings throughout Israel lived you'd be walking past that and you can kind of see where it goes it comes all the way from the temple all the way down and at the base of uh, this road is a pool and that pool is the pool of Siloam uh, it's created by the Gihon Spring. The Gihon is the stream that runs out of Zion, out of Jerusalem. It's, it's spring water. It's Maim Kaim, living water. Uh, it's here that the pilgrims, when they entered the city, would bathe. They would do mikvah. And why would they do this? Because Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the hill of God? Who may come into his presence? But he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so in this pool, uh, pilgrims would, would, would bathe to prepare their heart uh, to approach God. And so on the last and greatest day of the feast, uh, the priest would walk down to this pool, fill his jar with that living water that symbolized God's presence among them. He would take that into the temple to people singing and shouting, Hoshana and waving uh, palm branches. And then when he was inside the temple above the altar, he'd raise it. And I just envisioned that Jesus picked that moment to yell out into the silence. I am living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And this day is just getting started for Jesus. Because a little bit later in the day, the religious leaders are going to challenge Jesus, like, who are you to make such claims? Because he's really claiming to be God in that. And Standing in the courtyard of the temple where these giant candelabras uh, are are, are being put up uh, for this festival of lights for the last and greatest night of the feast, Um, when Jerusalem is lit up like a torch, Jesus literally there says, I can just see him pointing at one of them. I am the light of the world. I'm the light that shines in darkness. And if that isn't enough, He ends the whole discussion by saying, and the true children of Abraham act like Abraham, and Abraham welcomed me. And he concludes this whole thing by saying to them, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones right at that moment to kill him, to stone him, because they hear what we might miss Because when Moses asked God, God, what is your name? What do I tell the people of Israel your name is? God says, this is my name. My name is I am. And Jesus just claimed God's name. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And it's the third time now that he's said that. I am. I am the light of the world. I am living water. This day still isn't done. (laughs) Jesus leaves the temple. And now he passes a blind man. And the story that ensues here could be six sermons because there are six distinct scenes. Scene number one. They pass the blind man, probably begging on the southern stairs where all the pilgrims enter the temple. The text tells us that this blind man was born with this condition. And I want us to just get in this man's shoes. Maybe you just even close your eyes right now. Imagine never being able to see, never seeing the sunset, never seeing the starry host on a clear night, never even being able to see what your hands look like or your face through a reflection. He never saw his parents his siblings. Now blindness in the Bible, and especially this idea of being blind from birth, is more than just something physical. It symbolizes the state of our world. All the darkness, all the lostness, all the chaos, all the pain and suffering, the Bible uses the imagery of of blindness to depict that. So in verse 2, they pass this man, and the disciples ask, Jesus, who who sinned? Who caused this? Was it the man's sin, or was, was, was it his, his parents' sin? And before you, you criticize the disciples, um, I, I, I think we're oftentimes the same, same way. Anytime we see suffering, uh, we feel like we need to have an explanation. Why? Why did this happen? Why, God? Why, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to them? See, we want to know who or what caused it. Because I think that we think that if we actually know what the cause of suffering is, that we could remedy it. That we could keep it from happening. But here's the problem with this. I mean, we need to be very, very careful with this. Let me me just start with the premise here. Does sin cause suffering? Absolutely. I mean, we say it here uh, sometimes, choose to sin, choose to suffer, and it's something the Bible teaches over and over again. It says, whatever a person sows, also shall they reap. We, we reap what we sow. Our choices absolutely matter, and sinful choices will always lead to suffering. In fact, they have a rippling effect, not just affecting our own lives, but affecting the lives of others. This is why God, when when he gives Israel um, his Torah, his ways, his path, he ends it by saying, Israel, the choice is yours. You can choose my ways, you can choose my path, or you can choose your own ways and your own path, but the choice you're making is between life and death. So in Jesus' day, this was the simple explanation for all suffering. If someone suffered... It was because of sin. And also, conversely, if someone prospered, it was because they were good. They were righteous. And we see this in the book of Job. Job is suffering immensely. And his friends, you know what they essentially say to him? Job, let us explain to you why you're suffering. There must be sin in your life. Because no one would suffer this way if there wasn't sin. And this is why God chastises Job's friends. Because suffering is not this simplistic. Suffering is not this black and white. The Bible teaches there are so many other reasons as to why we suffer. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's choices. Sometimes it's, it's for the simple reason that our world is fallen and infected with sin, and therefore it's subjected to decay and death. So we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves that we have all this control over suffering. It's just not as simple as being good or bad. Psalm 73, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? It's because there's not a direct correlation between sin and suffering and between righteousness and blessing. Jesus says this He says, God causes it to rain on both the just and the unjust. Or look at it from this angle the most righteous person to ever live also suffered the most. And Jesus didn't suffer so that you and I wouldn't have to suffer, but to show us the supreme value of suffering and what suffering actually produces. It's suffering, not prosperity, that makes us more human, that makes us humbler, kinder, wiser, sweeter. I mean, think of what Paul says. Paul said our present suffering is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. I want us to see what this means because I think it means the most amazing thing. As we live in a world that thinks suffering is just random and it's meaningless and it's such a waste that we who believe in God can be confident that God knows what he is doing, that he is in control, that he's using it, that he's allowing it. And and, and right now, we can be utterly confident, no matter what we're going through, that God is is literally spinning our suffering into gold. He's turning our our, our tears into diamonds. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, right now, in his glorified state, if we could see him, we would do nothing other than fall down and worship him. But in his glorified state, he still bears his scars, his wounds. In his glorified state with Thomas, he literally says, Thomas, do you see my hands? Do you see my side? Or how about John, the the writer of this gospel, who also writes Revelation. In Revelation 5 says, when he sees the glorified Christ, he says, I turned to look at the lion of Judah and all I saw was a lamb that was slaughtered. See, what this means that Jesus in his most exalted, glorified state, the fact that he still bears his wounds and scars, it's because they're not just a part of his glory. They are his glory. And our glory is also being worked out through our scars, our wounds, our suffering. So this question, who sinned? Jesus Was it this man's parents? Was it the man himself? And Jesus, instead of looking back, something that our therapeutic world has taught us to do with everything as it pertains to suffering, because we always want an explanation, Jesus actually looks forward to what this man's suffering and ultimately Christ's suffering will achieve in the future. And what's that? (laughs) Glory. I mean, this whole book is about a God in Christ who so loves the world that he is going to redeem the world, repair the world, restore the world through suffering. And so when Jesus' hands literally go into that mud, and then he spits in the ground out of his mouth that saliva, and, and, and he takes it, and he puts it on this man's eyes. He's doing what he did when he created the first man, when God's hands literally went into the mud. and his mouth, he breathed life into him. And now into this blind man's darkness, the light of the world says, let there be Has Jesus' light shine in your darkness to give you the light of light? Scene number one. Scene number two, verses nine to 12. This man had a public life. He was a public figure. Uh, It was the life of begging. Um, So, blind from birth and healed, His neighbors, friends, locals, fellow beggars, they see him, and they now need an explanation. Why? He's so changed. And they're like, no way. They they even start thinking, there's no way it's the same guy. And the guy just keeps saying, I am, I am, I am. Makes me wonder, is he like subtly saying all praise to the I am? I don't know. Do you know the power of a life transformed by Jesus? I mean, really, except for Jesus himself, there is nothing in all our world more powerful than a life transformed by Jesus Christ. There is nothing that confronts the darkness of our world, than it changed life. There's nothing. And Jesus looks at us and he says, we are the light of the world. We are the light that shines in the darkness. And so often I think we think that light is, is a brilliant apologetic for Christ or having airtight theology, uh, being able to answer every question an, an agnostic might ask in regards to Jesus or even having this inspiring theology of suffering. But listen, the light that, that shines brightest in our dark world is a life that's been transformed by Jesus Christ. It's a healed marriage. It's a shattered life repaired. It's a relationship reconciled. It's a life of selflessness transformed into generosity and kindness. It's a heart of pride and arrogance replaced with contrite humility. It's sexual lust or greed that's repaired with passionate worship for God has this happened to you has Jesus touched you have his hands gone into the mud of your life and has he transformed it into new life exit scene two scene three Verses 13 to 17. This changed man quickly becomes a threat, especially to those in power. In that regard, nothing's changed. So they put him on trial. And what's their issue? Well, Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And according to the tradition of the elders, you are not supposed to make things on the Sabbath. And Jesus just made mud. <laughs> yeah, you can laugh at that. This is, this is hilarious. And so this is their, their, their line of thinking. Their line of thinking is this. Okay, Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, which means he's a sinner, and one possibly cannot come from God and be the Messiah if he's a sinner. And then you start to realize how how obsessed they become with the how. Like, how did Jesus actually do this? And it's more than they're they're looking for all, all the work that he did to make mud. Because this doesn't fit their theology. According to their theology, a sinner shouldn't be able to heal and a sinner shouldn't be able to get healed. But what they're witnessing now is a sinner just healed a sinner. And that doesn't fit. But here's what they can't change. This man's been changed by Jesus. And people who are changed by Jesus... People who are all in with Jesus, who become like Jesus, who follow Jesus, who walk with Jesus, they are a threat. And they're a threat especially to those with power. You know, we have an election coming up. Did you guys know that or not? (laughs) We can't get our eye off the ball. Our battle is not right versus left, Republican versus Democrat. It's it's not everything else that that the media wants to tell it is. The, 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 The battle is what the Bible says it is. It's against the powers and the principalities of this dark world. And the darkness hates Jesus. It despises him. And the reason it despises him is because of who Jesus is. He is such a threat. He is the light of the world. And light, think about what it does. It exposes the darkness. It snuffs out the darkness. And see, this is why Jesus said, uh, it's in Luke somewhere, he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace. (laughs) He says, no, I've come to make war. Are you a threat? Are you all in? Is the light of Jesus shining in you and out of you into a dark world? Exit scene three, scene four, verses 18 through 23. Now those in power, the authorities, find the man's parents. So now the parents are brought on trial. And again, the authorities ask, how did this happen? Now the parents will not, they refuse to answer their question in fact I want your eyes to fall on verse 22 I want you to read this in fact let's start at verse 21 to just give it a little bit of context but how can but how can he see now there's their question how can he see now who opened his eyes they're asking this to the parents and they say we don't know. And then they say, ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And now here's verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be excommunicated, would be put out of the synagogue. Parents won't answer their question. If you think this whole cancel out thing that's going on right now is something new, you're actually quite wrong. It's it's what people, especially those who are in power, they wield this power of canceling people out because it works. And like these parents, I mean, they're afraid. They are afraid of this power of being canceled out, of, ex, of, of being literally excommunicated. So much so are they afraid that they're going to turn their own back on their child and say... Let him stand alone. We're out of here. Ask him. It's powerful. You know, I'll say this, uh, as I've just, this, this thought is something that's just uh, been being banged around in my head for maybe the last three or four years. Um, in my lifetime, in the world that I live, Christianity has, for the most part, been mainstream. Uh, it's had enormous power, it's had political power, economic power. But that's changing, and that's changing really, really fast. Christianity is no longer mainstream. In fact, more and more, we are becoming the target of mainstream. How come no one's standing up dancing right now or saying amen? And this is exciting. Who wants to be mainstream. Are you guys sleeping? <laughs> Listen, there's so much good news. If, if, if you look at the church in history, when the church is mainstream, I mean, it produces people like this guy's parents, people who are fearful, conventional, conforming, watered down. But if you also look at the church throughout history, you see that, that it is at its best when we're politically and economically powerless. Powerless. When mainstream is beating us up and persecuting us and canceling us out and confiscating our property and throwing us into prison or throwing us to the lions. Are you ready for this? Are you ready to let go of mainstream? Are you all in for Christ? So there's not a lot of people in here like these parents who out of fear wanna hang on to their comfortable life. Exit scene four, scene five. Verses 24 to 34. Now the man is put back on trial. Again, by these Jews who are in power. And here's their MO. Their MO is, we know. They say it so many times in these verses. Uh, Verse 24, they say, we know this Jesus is a sinner. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. And here's what they're doing with their little we know, because it's the exact same thing that Nicodemus did. It's the first thing out of his mouth when he meets with Jesus in John chapter 3, is we know, Jesus, we know who you are. We got you in our little box. And see, it's it's, it's an attempt to control the narrative about Jesus. This is what people do, especially people in power. They feel the need to make everyone think that they know what no one else knows. But there's a chink in their armor, and it comes out in verse 29. The one thing that they don't know, and they say it, they say, we don't know where Jesus came from. Now think about this. Here are they who claim to know everything about Jesus except for where Jesus came from. But the man on trial knows nothing about Jesus except, he says, I once was blind, but now I see. And he says, this I know. That is the one thing we need to know about Jesus. In fact, if you put yourself in the shoes of this blind man, uh, his whole life he's been treated like an object. He's, He's been nothing more than the subject of a debate on why people suffer. But now he's been healed and he's been restored. And see, I think when, when, when all these questions come to us today about what we believe about Jesus and we think we need to know everything about Jesus and be able to answer every skeptic's question uh, in regards to Jesus, we forget the main thing. The most important thing is, has he touched you? Has he healed you? Has he changed you? Has he transformed you to the point you can say, this I know. I once was blind, but now I see. I love this man, how he handles their skepticism. He's like, so guys, you guys just said there's something you don't know. You don't know where Jesus came from, yet he opened my eyes. I was blind, but now I see. Look at me. No one has ever done this. And I could just hear him even going further. You guys know the book, the prophets. They say when Messiah comes, the desert's going to bloom and rejoice. The lame are going to walk. The blind are going to see. He's going to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 42, verse 7, to open the eyes of those who are blind. But they're not open to truth. They're more intent on preserving their narrative and thinking they're right about everything. And so their only recourse is to cancel this man out, excommunicate him. The end of scene five, scene number six. This is awesome. Jesus hears about this, and he goes and he finds the man. And here's a question for you. Has this man seen Jesus? No. He's heard Jesus, he talked to Jesus, but he had to go a long way away from Jesus to get his eyesight. All he has heard is Jesus' voice. And this is a preview to John chapter 10 when Jesus says, my sheep, they know my voice and they listen to me. And this man, all he's heard is the voice of the shepherd and he obeyed that voice. And now when Jesus comes to him, Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Messiah? He's heard that voice before. I see this this giddy smirk come over his face when he says, Who is he, sir, that I may believe? And Jesus says, Your eyes now see him. You're looking at him. And the man said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And then it says, and he worshipped him. Do you know what this story teaches us? It teaches us what it means to be blind, and it teaches us what it means to see. That the ones who actually claim to see, who claim to know everything about everything, who's in, who's not in, who Jesus is, are actually blind, and the blind man is Not only the one who is the only one who sees, but he's the only one who listened to Jesus' voice and obeyed it. And he sees, and then he sees. When I went to Israel for the first time, and I saw the place where this story actually took place, I mean, it just rocked my world. Because that's the first time I realized what Jesus asked this man to do. He asked this man to take the same path down that the priest had to take down and go to the same pool that the priest went to into that living water. And he had to beg, and he had to bathe. And this is what hit me. Because I just got done walking it. He was blind. The whole way. All the way down. Every single Step. It was a step of faith. Just like Israel, when the sea parted, every step as they looked at the water on both sides of them was a step of faith. Just like the widow that, that, that Elijah came to and, and, and had no more food, but before God was going to provide daily bread for her miraculously, she had to give her very last meal to Elijah Or Naaman, the leper, before God healed him, he said, I want you to go down to that river. I want you to bathe seven times. And he did it. Because this is what it means to see. It's hearing Jesus' voice, and it's trusting that voice with every every fiber of our being, with everything that we have. Jesus is my sheep. They hear my voice, and they listen to me. Can you say that today? Can you honestly say, I once was blind, but now I see? Do you hear the voice of the shepherd? Are you listening to him? Because it will make all the difference in the world. It will make you different. It will change you. And as we exit scene six and enter scene seven, because this story continues in us, as we prepare ourselves for communion, one of the things I'm going to just ask is that some of you would get up, and in a, in a minute or less, that minute is a key word, you tell us how you were blind and how you now see through Jesus Christ. And those of you who are watching online, if you want to just type in your story of how you were blind and how Jesus has brought sight to your life, light to your darkness. So I invite some of you to come up to prepare us uh, to take communion this morning by telling us how you were once blind, but now you see.